This is Movies, a podcast about the act of cinema. I am your host, Lorez, and today we are going to be discussing Black Klansmen. I didn't want to say we're trapped, but that pecker would have had a gun in my face. And he was an ass hair away from pulling the trigger. And he didn't. But he could have. And then I would have been dead. For what? Stopping some jerk-offs from playing dress-up? I had quite the weekend. I was staying in Boston recently. And if you know anything about me, I don't quite... I don't really have a home. Like, this is the, this is the thing. I'm always going back and forth between uh, Massachusetts and New York. Because uh, my girlfriend, the love of my life, lives in Long Island, works in Manhattan. I do a lot of my work in New York as well. And I live out in the woods of Massachusetts because it is far cheaper, okay? The real estate in New York is uh, unmatched to anywhere else in the United States, aside from perhaps Los Angeles, California. It makes no sense to live out there uh, aside from networking, which is something that I can do if I get on a Greyhound bus. So I, I go back and forth and we, you know, I don't like calling it a long distance relationship. I wouldn't call it that whatsoever. We treat it like she lives a town over, even though it's a fucking, it's uh, five hours on the bus. It's miserable. Um, she stayed with me this weekend and we had uh, gotten a hotel in Boston, a place called the Yotel. And it, it, the Yotel was particularly interesting to me compared to other hotels. And I've stayed at, oh my God, probably about a hundred hotels at this this point in my life. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just constantly moving around. But the Yotel has the aesthetic of like a 1960s space film. And, you know, the, that immediately kind of perked my mood up. And so, you know, keep in mind, I'm exiting the Yotel as I head to the cinema with my, my gal. And we have these tickets for what really became the final screening at this theater and uh, seemingly Massachusetts, or, or at least um, the Boston area, for Spike Lee's latest film, Black Klansman. And Spike Lee is somebody who I have mixed feelings about as a person uh but as a filmmaker he would he would fall within the top five category for me behind uh park chan wook nicholas winding refin uh these types of fellows so i was very interested in this movie going into it i've seen close to all of his films i, I you know i'm not quite familiar with the documentary work um but I, I have a great appreciation for his style of filmmaking. And so, you know, we bought tickets and it was one of those, you know, luxury theaters where you have the reclinable seats and they have heaters built into them. You got to reserve your tickets in advance. And there were maybe about six people in the theater. And so these are my thoughts now on the Black Klansman. Okay, and I, I started reading the uh, the book by Ron Stallworth, which has been very good thus far. Obviously, there are uh, countless differences uh, to the movie, which kind of plays as like a throw uh, throw back. Uh, I was gonna say throw black, throw back to the black exploitation flicks of the '70s, something like Shaft, and they reference Shaft in the movie. Um, 
So, uh, you know, this is th th these are my thoughts on Spike Lee's latest outing. Have a seat. Go ahead and uh, fill these out. Send them to the national headquarters. Now, once they send you your membership card, you'll be able to participate in all our programs. I'm cool. I can't wait. I love the commercial. Imperial tax to become a member, $10 for the year. $15 chapter fee. Robes and hoods are not included. That's extra. Fucking inflation. So as I said before, I you know I I saw this movie just as they were about to rip the reels from the cinema. It was it was game over. You know it's been out for a minute. I really wanted to see it, and I just didn't get around to it, and wasn't playing at too too many theaters. But I was surprised that this got a wide release, and it is a movie that has been highly politicized and is inherently political per the subject matter and the person that is helming the subject matter, Spike Lee. And, uh, you know, due to the ending, it is nearly impossible to get around the topic of modern politics when discussing this film, which is fine. You know, you got your Netflix shows, you're getting it in your, your stand-up comedy, your YouTube channels, your fucking cereal boxes. It's inescapable. Why not have it here as well? Let me get into this right at the top of the episode so we can actually focus on the movie itself for the bulk of this podcast. Now, I was led to believe by film critics and journalists that this movie was going to be the equivalent to a 2017 episode of Saturday Night Live. And considering it starts with Alec Baldwin acting in a white supremacist PSC, PSA uh, full of clips from The Birth of a Nation, you almost have that feeling going in. But it wasn't that at all. If you had read an article on the Daily Beast, talking about how this movie is laden with jabs at Trump. It's not. They're liars. It is most certainly not a pro-Trump film, and it doesn't paint him in a flattering light at the end, but I would never go as far to say that this is a piece of left-wing propaganda or that the aspects of modern politics that are inserted in this film are irrelevant to the piece or the greater picture at large. As a matter of fact, if you remove the epilogue, which is uh, footage of the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally and the real-life David Duke speaking there. They show the death of Heather Hare, uh, the car plowing through a crowd of people, and then uh, Trump's response to that, which obviously polarized the entire country. Um, it is actually pretty even-handed without that uh, when it comes to giving the unflattering nods to the two sides. For one America First chant, you get a Baldwin reference to uh, Super Predators, a direct callback to the losing 2016 candidate Hillary Clinton, which, you know, she referred to blacks as that back in the 90s. Today we are privileged mm -hmm. to be among white men oh. and white women, <laughs> <laughs> such as yourselves. Real warriors for the real America, the America that our ancestors fought and died for. Yes. I want to thank you so much for never putting your country second. America first. America first. America first. Inserting footage of real world events or tying current political manners into fictional pieces or biopics is nothing new to Spike Lee, so nobody should be shocked about the inclusion of this. But genuinely speaking, having heard about this ending before having seen the film, 
I was concerned that it may spoil the overall movie experience, given that that has happened with almost all creative pieces made by artists who have thought that it is their job to call out the current administration through their work. I am pleased to say, however, that it doesn't come across that way or shoehorned in whatsoever. It's there, it's brief, uh, like I said before, it features the real David Duke, and it is an evolution of what is highlighted in this film, the modernization of the Ku Klux Klan. Is Spike Lee suggesting that President Trump is complicit in the normalization of 4,000 vocal cretins with radical views in a country of 325 million? Sure. Is he overlooking the American press's vulturesque tactic of reporting 4,000 people like they're 40 million and granting white nationalists like Richard Spencer vanity pieces, thus giving them the confidence to promote their ideology even louder and more openly? Maybe. Is it Spike Lee's job to offer that point of view? No. It's a movie. It's Spike Lee's movie. If Spike Lee's reality reflects that the American president has rolled out a welcome rug to David Duke and the alt-right, and that's something that he wants to communicate through his work, then that is his chosen additional responsibility outside of delivering an entertaining and product. Does the desire to include that element hinder the overall film? In my opinion, it does not. Now, I will put a pin in that and focus on the film itself, so don't worry. Politics are done here. Black Klansman is about the real-life undercover mission led by Ron Stallworth, the first black detective in Colorado Springs. Stallworth is played by John David Washington in this film. His performance is great, but let me talk to you about Michael Buscemi. My lord, who knew that Steve Buscemi had a brother in the first place? My girlfriend Christine leans over to me in the theater when he pops up on screen and goes, Why couldn't they just get Steve Buscemi to play that part? Now, I'm looking at the guy's beady pug dog eyes, and all of a sudden, I got this suspicious feeling in my gut. So I whip out my phone, because you can do that at a 1 p.m. final showing of Black Klansmen, where there's only six other people in the theater. And lo and behold, Michael Buscemi. This is a guy I'd love to see more of. Gee whiz. Now, the movie also features Adam Driver, Alec Baldwin, as I previously stated, Laura Harrier, who... I did not recognize. She played Peter Parker's girlfriend in Spider-Man Homecoming, but you know this broad is pushing 30. Unbelievable. One minute she's dating police detectives, the next it's high school boys. What a regular Mary Kay Letourneau. And you know, last but not least, we have Topher Grace here making his triumphant return to the big screen for the first time since what seems like Predators, anyway. Uh, and you know, I, I picked up on something as I was watching this. He, he had this giant lump, this big lump right under his nose the entire time. It was really distracting for me. I couldn't tell if he's always had this atrocious mole right there or, or if he just showed up on set with a big cyst on his face. It was a real terror, let me tell you. Uh, you know, and uh, look, I've been a fan of Spike Lee since probably the age of, I don't know, four or five years old. I picked up one of those old catalogs where you can order three VHS tapes for a penny. And at the time, I was a big fan of this show on Nickelodeon, Gullah Gullah Island. Come and let's play together in the bright sunny weather. Let's all go to Gullah Gullah Island. Gullah Gullah. And Gullah Gullah Island focused on this Caribbean family, and there was a giant yellow spotted frog. It was, it was a guy in like a Barney-esque outfit. It kind of looked like, what was her name, Baby Bop? I don't know, but it was a giant toad, and, you know, he was he was an adorable character. It was really, it was one of the last great programs of the 20th century. 
So I watch this show on the regular right before I'm ready to go to kindergarten or first grade, whenever it was. And, you know, I pick up one of these penny catalogs and I see the cover to Crooklyn. And on that cover is another black family and the mother, much like the mother on Gullah Gullah Island. She had braids in her hair. And I made the logical conclusion that Crooklyn was Gullah Gullah Island the movie. And so, you know, I bullied my mother into ordering this videotape for me. I was kind of like the baby boss, just a spoiled infant uh, with more control than he ever deserved. Eight weeks or so passed, because it took a long time to get those movies in the mail. That was no joke. Like, a good, you, you were kissing away a good portion of your life the minute you sent in for one of those videotapes. Uh, so I get the tape. And what is it? It's a movie about a struggling family and a mom with cancer. My life was ruined. As an aside, here's something kind of crazy that I picked up on recently. I didn't believe it the first time that I had heard it, but I, you know, I looked into it and it's on IMDb. How reliable is that? I'm going to trust it. I had no clue about this. It feels like one of those Berenstain, Berenstain multidimensional incidents, to be honest with you. Makes me think that I have some kind of a, you know, a, a tunnel in my brain that leads to God. I, I, I'm, I'm really starting to believe this. Could be schizophrenia. Who the fuck knows? I don't know. But uh, apparently, Crooklyn had been written as a television pilot. A television pilot for Nickelodeon. Can you imagine that? I would, look, look, you know, I might have been a little racist four or five-year-old drawing these conclusions, but I was onto something here, all right? I, it, was, it was written as a TV pilot for Nickelodeon. Apparently, they had shot something that was 22 minutes and uh, screened it for inner-city inner kids, and the reception... It was terrible. It was really poor. Uh, it, I mean, look, it's a very depressing movie. I can't imagine why kids wouldn't want to tune into that. You know, especially, you know, you think back to the 90s. What were they watching? Doug? Stick Stickly? Face? This, 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 is, this is too real for kids. Especially, you know, if they brought that out nowadays, oh my God, children would be shell-shocked. They wouldn't be able to handle it. So Spike Lee's real golden era, and this is my segue into Spike Lee's golden era of filmmaking here. Spike Lee's golden era of filmmaking was roughly the late 80s to about the mid to late 90s, okay? And, I, you know, a lot of people kind of look at Do the Right Thing as his first movie, even though uh, he had done School Days and She's Gotta Have It before that. But those movies are kind of, and I'm, I'm going to draw a comparison here with Stanley Kubrick, because to me anyway, his first real movie is The Killing. This is where he had kind of figured out the mechanics of, of, the, of the filmmaking process to be able to uh, put out a movie that even if there were amateur aspects of it, it still felt like a real movie. You know, he had put out, I think, a movie called uh, uh, Fear and Desire, and that was technically his first scripted film. But it is so weakly done. Even though there are flashes of brilliance in it, it's definitely not the Kubrick that was active in the 40s and onward. Um and Spike Lee has this same thing. I think it might be just common in general among auteurs. Uh, so his career truly kind of kicks off with Do the Right Thing. And that period of his life ended around the time of He Got Game or Bamboozled. You know, Somewhere around there. Maybe Summer Sam is in the middle. You can look at Summer Sam and Bamboozled 
as uh, the end of that era. And they're both entertaining films in their own regard. But I don't know if I would include them in in the golden age of Spike Lee. They might just squeak in barely. I th- I think there's uh, things to be picked up from both of those movies. And you know, as I said before, they are entertaining films, but they don't they don't fit in as much. They're kind of like the bridge to the Spike Lee of the aughts. And so with the twenty fifth hour. That starts a new phase of Spike Lee where he becomes a far less interesting filmmaker and he begins tackling more traditionally commercial films. Two of these include Inside Man and the reviled Old Boy remake, which I covered in my Deconstruction series. Now, I still stand by the fact that the elements of Old Boy 2013 that do not work are not the fault of Spike Lee. Then again, that remake shouldn't have ever existed, so... Fair enough either way, no matter how you handle it. Uh, Over the past five or six years, Spike has done something that I've kept a close eye on. It's something that very few filmmakers can genuinely accomplish. He has begun to return to his roots. The movies he's been putting out over the past decade or so feel much more in line with those films of the 90s. It starts with Red Hook Summer, released in 2012, a low-budget film that takes place in the same universe as Do the Right Thing for whatever reason, and features an award-worthy performance from the highly underutilized Clark Peters. He is magnificent in this movie, and it's it's really a crime that uh, that performance has been so overlooked in the analogs of history. Um, now, Old Boy followed that, as did the micro-budget, crowd-sourced film The Sweet Blood of Jesus, which is not really noteworthy in any regard outside of being an inferior remake of Ganja and Hess. It is a highly skippable film. But after that came Chirac, which, you know, it was almost a return to form. It was Spike Lee being Spike Lee on a reasonable budget, which is something that Red Hook Summer and The Sweet Blood of Jesus lacked. Money and poor acting played a tremendous part in the flaws of both of those films. Um, when you look at Chirac, it's, it, 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 you know, you didn't get that kind of Spike Lee for a good long while, where he's working with people like Samuel Jackson and uh, you know, John Cusack, and they are spitting out his dialogue. Be so damn smart, you know you tweaking, right? You lame as hell playing games for real with this whack-ass panty stripe. And that's that shit we don't like. You want to choose to be rude? Bitches gonna be tight when you make them lose their dues. I don't know who you think you're trying to change. I'm Trojan through and through with a stronger than any damn screw. It's even bigger than you. All you care about is this tired gangster game. Well, it's lame. You think you die with fame? Negro, two days later, no one will even remember your name. Chirac was Spike Lee having room to mess around and make something that could look and feel like old school Spike. Unfortunately, Spike Lee made the mistake of casting Nick Cannon as the lead. The movie also falls apart roughly midway through just due to poor writing. That being said, though, it is still rich with character, and that's something that cannot be said about many of the films to predate it. The first real top-to-bottom venture back into the familiar is the Netflix remake of Lee's first feature, She's Gotta Have It. She's Gotta Have It was adapted into a 10-episode series, all of which were, to my knowledge, written and directed by Spike Lee. It's kind of cheesy, and it caters to the Tumblr demo to a fault, but up until Black Klansman, it was the best thing that Spike Lee had directed since he got game. 
Now, here we are, 2018, and with Jordan Peele acting as this film's producer, Black Klansman is a total return to form for the veteran director, Lee. It is his most coherent film in two decades, and honestly, one of the better movies overall to have dropped this year. We're coming out of a, a real slump for movie making, especially blockbuster films. 2015 was... Perhaps the worst year for cinema that I can recall in my entire life. 2016 was almost as bad. And 2017 gave us a little bit of a bounce back. 2013 was a great year for movies. 2014 was a strong year for movies. It was really just those two years, which I think Marvel fever took over. Uh, the the brains of a lot of these people working in Hollywood where they, you know, there was obviously more of an emphasis then and we're coming out of it a, a little bit now where they wanted these shared universes regardless of whatever the property is. You know, they're making a Power Rangers movie and they're planning seven films in advance. It makes no sense and, and it's a total waste of money. Um, we're, we're coming out of that fog right now and Black Klansman is... Something that is refreshing. 2018's movies have been really strange. And I like that. Um, it's one of my top five of the year thus far. Uh, I think it is a great film. Highly, highly uh, charged and entertaining. If there is a flaw to Black Klansman, it is that Michael Buscemi is underutilized. No, look, it's a fine movie. Directors like Spike Lee are no longer afforded many options to use their talent within the current Hollywood system, so it feels reassuring to see a movie like this get a wide release, one that has been seemingly uninterfered with. Not to keep harping on the Marvel thing, the shared universe complaints, but this is really something that uh, is recurring now. Because you do wind up getting these low-budget independent flicks that are directed by uh, budding auteurs who have something interesting to say with their movies, or maybe they edit it like exquisitely well in, in a way that doesn't compare to anybody else. But, you know, Warner Brothers, Fox, Disney, they snatch these people up, like a Ryan Coogler, for example. Uh, you know, he, he came out the gate with Fruitvale Station, and then Creed, and both of those movies were great. And then he moves on to Black Panther, and all of a sudden, you know, he's another cog in the Disney machine. James Gunn is another guy. Super is a fantastic movie. And then we wind up getting into the whole Guardians of the Galaxy debacle. He makes that property interesting. They dispose of him like he's a used condom. It's an ugly look. And so I, I, I want to see more of that. I want to see more filmmakers with talent Turning down these big studio offers, which, honestly, I don't blame you if you, if you don't. You know, if you if you want to take that giant paycheck and have reliable work for the next 10 years, assuming, you know, people don't dig into your Twitter account, uh, go for it. Believe me, I, I, I completely understand. I would take that deal in a second. Are you kidding me? But it, it, doesn't, it doesn't help the cinematic landscape much. The Safdie brothers... I'm a big fan of theirs. I think they are doing God's work, those boys. They apparently turned down a Marvel property. That's a huge sign of confidence on their end. Uh, and I, I hope it works out for them because I, I love their, their work. Good Time was my top movie of 2017. And I am so curious to see what they do with Adam Sandler in this new movie coming out.
I think, next year. Where does Spike Lee go from here? That is a good question, because I know that She's Gotta Have It Season 2 is going to be dropping on Netflix, I believe, this year. It came out around Thanksgiving last year. Like I said before, the series was good. It was a little too on the nose, maybe, but I'm not the demographic for that, so I, uh, whatever. I, I, you know, I, uh, I'm not too bothered by that. And it, when, when, you know, it comes to, like, giving a message in your work, right? Spike Lee is a guy who's been doing that since the 80s. And it, it feels, in my opinion, it feels different when it comes from somebody like Spike Lee as opposed to a Joss Whedon. It is far more palatable because you know that this is what this guy is about. And I'm not saying that, you know, Joss Whedon doesn't really love women. Loves putting his dick in women. Uh, you know, but, you know, there's a, there's a difference. For me, anyway. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm talking out of my ass. I don't know. Joss Whedon. Oh, baby tooth Whedon. That guy truly frightens me. He's unhinged. You take a look at his Twitter. Ho, 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 ho. A violent man. A violent man in his own thoughts. I don't, I don't know. He's gonna be. He's gonna be. He's gonna be locked up. I'm. Look. I'm not. I'm not against freedom of speech here. I don't think people should be punished for their words. But I. I think we should put Joss Whedon in a cage personally. Anyway, uh, Spike Lee. I have no idea what he's attached to next. I. I hope he doesn't just uh, bury himself in documentary work or very low budget projects because he desperately needs a budget. He needs actors that can deliver his dialogue the way that. It's supposed to be delivered because, you know, just to touch back on Red Hook Summer, even though Clark Peters gives a knockout performance in that movie, the child actors are dreadful and it definitely affects the film. The acting in uh, The Sweet Blood of Jesus is also equally terrible, but these are adult actors. They, they, you know, they, they have it seems like they have trouble giving the lines. It's just bad. None of that with Black Klansmen, though. And, you know, the, the movie is almost Tarantino-esque, which I know would probably make Spike Lee shudder. I'm pretty sure that they have some kind of rivalry going on, where the comparisons between the two are, you know, it's, it's easy to make. Um, they come from a similar school of filmmaking, where they draw upon the thousands of older films that they've seen and implement aspects of that into their films they're kind of like super fans of this particular genre the editing showcases a lot of that and features the same old hallmarks of spike lee that have been throughout his work from the past 30 some odd years uh it is a great film and the performances in it especially from as i mentioned before john david washington and adam driver who's great in everything. I mean, he, he, he always gives at least a serviceable performance. It's all top-notch. It's a good time at the movies, and I do recommend it. But this is, this is not a review show. I'm just I'm talking about movies, okay? I'm talking... Look, you can't... I don't know if you can actually commit as much time to making things as reviewing things and giving a proper analysis. This, this, is, this is a flaw that is found in the uh, works of... Many, many, many people, uh, where you will have uh, people who truly make their make their bones off of uh, off of criticizing other people's work, and then they attempt that themselves, and it's usually them coming up short. I want to point out uh, Red Letter Media; they have a fantastic variety of shows. Uh, Best of the worst, you know, is always a good sixty minutes to ninety minutes. 
benefits of a day well spent. But you take a look at Space Cop, and oh my god. these are That's from the same guys? Yikes. I, I think I'd rather go watch the angry video game nerd movie. It is uh, not a good look. And so I, I, I'm not really looking to criticize these movies so much as uh, discuss them, get uh, a little beneath the surface of what they're about, and all the peripheral things that float around these films, such as as I got into Spike Lee's background as a filmmaker and just his general filmography. And Crooklyn being an almost Nickelodeon show. I mean, where, where else are you going to learn these things? I should be on PBS. All right, guys, this is the conclusion of the episode. And I want to say thank you for listening. But also, if you want to help the operation here, I, I actually, I shouldn't say operation. That's that sounds, if you watch the movie Black Klansman, there's this big, you know, thing made of, well, we don't call it the Klan. We call it the organization. I got to, you know, these old words, they're going to get me in trouble. Uh, if you want to help this podcast and everything else that's going on with it, lowres.live. That is the primary hub for everything that is going on here. You can check out the short films that have been released over the past two years, some of the deconstruction documentaries that are also more directly film-related. We have a couple of uh, series, including the Let's Play with Lowres series and Cybernetic Ebert of the year 2000. And if you really, really, really want to do me a favor, go over to patreon.com slash lowres and by contributing $1 per month or more, you know, I love, I love it when people do more, but hey, I understand, you know, hard financial times, I get it. Not only are you going to be assisting in making sure that everything here is 10 out of 10 and that we can grow at a sufficient rate, but you're going to get some stuff. You're going to get some top secret videos, maybe some top secret audio recordings. I don't know. You might not like all of it. You might hate it. I Look, there's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash lowers. Thank you again for listening, and I will see you again next week for another episode of Movies. Let's play.